Hello, welcome to another recording episode for Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. My name is Julie Wilson. I've done some recording for Peter before. Peter is not here right now, uh, but they have granted me their permission to do some recording in their stead. I'm very excited to do it. I'm excited to come back to these characters and act as their voices and uh, try not to laugh at some of Peter's really funny scenes. Just a couple quick things before I get started officially. First, I know that I have done voices uh, for Peter's story before. Some of the voices are easy for me to slip into and some of them I don't really remember what I did. So I will do the best at that I can to be consistent, but please bear with me if some of the characters sound slightly different than how I've played them before. This leads to my second quick housekeeping point, which is sometimes I'm not sure how to pronounce things. And I have told Peter that they are welcome to correct me or to um, ask me to re-record certain things or to record correct pronunciations of words if I can't get them right. So if that happens, uh, please bear with us. Um, Peter, obviously, since they're the creator of this story, knows how to pronounce things better than I do because it's their world. But I will do the best that I can as I say things, hopefully in an exciting voice. All right, this concludes my slightly awkward introduction to this recording. Story six, Visions. Jumpers off the port bow! All hands! All hands! The deck was a blur of action as everyone moved into position. Pana jumped up from where they had been napping and rubbed their eyes to try to wake up a little bit. They grabbed the box next to them and ran towards the boat, dodging kids who were making their way to the railing and parents who were following closely behind. They ducked beneath a man who tugged on a rope, making the sail flop loosely in the wind. The boat plowed into the water ahead of them and lurched to, not a stop exactly, but a slower speed. Pana felt the force of the sudden change in momentum push them forward, and they just barely managed to catch themselves before falling onto the deck. They weren't sure how much more trauma their broken, yet healing, shoulder could take. At the bow, a small crowd had gathered and was looking out at the water. There's about 30 jumpers out there, said Tally. See? Right over there. I can't believe how much they seem to like that moldy fish. The mold must smell really good. Just make sure you keep your distance from them. Don't want them going after us like they did the other day, said Bob. Like nodded. No worries, matey. We'll stay just long enough for Pana to do what they need to do. MC, are we still heading due east? Aye, aye, Captain. See, I told you talking like a sailor would be fun. It really gets you in the sailing mood. Sure. Pana, you ready? Pana had to stop themselves from also responding with a hearty, Aye, aye. They affirmed that they were ready, placing the box on the ground and sitting next to it. From the box, they pulled out their notebook and some charcoal pencils and began to sketch the jumpers. The creatures were long and smooth. They weren't as fast as the doflas, but they came really close. Not only that, but they seemed to prefer leaping on top of their prey, using their giant, horizontally-oriented fins to catch the air and push them far into the sky. When they landed on unsuspecting prey, they shredded their poor victim with razor-sharp teeth. With such a small snout, Pana wondered how many teeth the creature could have. 
and they wished they could forget after they saw a jumper lunge at the boat, mouth wide open. After their encounter with the creatures yesterday, the sight of a jumper's three dorsal fins cutting through the surface was enough to frighten most of the crew. Pana would have to finish the sketch of the creatures quickly before the ship made its getaway. Remember, as long as we don't provoke them, we should be okay, said Lyke, taking on an air of seriousness that she lacked in less stressful situations. The jumpers seemed to hear her, for at that moment they poked their heads above the water and began cackling at the boat. Water spouted into the air from their blowholes, along with a sound that Pana thought was rather rude. The jumpers seemed to be enjoying themselves when, all of a sudden, their mouths fell open, and they paused in their antics. They glanced at their companions, and then ducked into the water. "'What scared them off?' asked Tally, leaning over the side of the boat to look at the jumpers' wake as they fled. A puff of warm air descended on the group. They all turned and looked at Wave Skimmer. He then turned and looked off into the distance, trying to find what the humans were all looking at. Pana made a note in their notebook. The jumpers don't seem to be as confident as we thought. I guess bullies, regardless of all species, don't like picking on anyone who isn't smaller than they are. Thanks, friend. They stood up and hugged Wave Skimmer. He smiled, scales a sparkling yellow, scratching his side with his back paw. Everyone who had been on the deck to watch the jumpers returned to what they were doing, leaving Pana alone with Like, Bob, Tally, and MC. MC pulled out a map that she had been studying over the last few days. Have you had any luck figuring out where we are yet? asked Like. She kept her voice to a whisper. I don't want to have to tell the rest of the passengers that we're lost. Possibly. We should have confirmation of our position in a day or two. MC pointed to a curve on that map. See this here? That should be the coast. It wraps around the bay like a giant circle with an opening up north. We are not close to the coast on any side. My memory is really hazy, but my map should be accurate, more or less. Pana asked, you made this map? When MC nodded, they also asked, you traveled around the entire bay? Like I said back in the port, I've traveled around a lot. Now, can I remember those travels very well? No, but my maps haven't led anyone astray yet, and I guarantee you that they won't now. Pana wanted to ask MC even more about her maps and travels. They remembered her saying something about traveling when they had originally met the group, but had been too occupied to follow up with the white-haired woman. But before they could ask her another question, Tali pointed to another feature on the map. Hold on, what's that? Tali asked. That, said MC, pointing to a mark toward the center of the bay, is what we are looking for. A giant island ripe with provisions and fresh water. We can resupply there. The inhabitants are quite interesting. Not quite human, but almost. They work really well with stone. Bob, you're going to love their carpentry techniques. I think. I can't really remember what it was like. The rest of the group listened eagerly to MC as she explained how these people had much larger webbed feet and an extra two fingers than humans and how they had found ways to build homes underground in the rocks rather than on the surface. It was all very interesting, and they would have to record it in their notebook at some point, but Pana couldn't focus on that right now. They thought they had seen a flash of white among the passengers going about their business that seemed oddly striking. Most of the people from the port wore thick brown shirts, similar to the one that Bob had made for Pana, though theirs was much thinner, that they had woven from some sort of plant. White was an unusual color here. Scanning around for a moment more, they concluded that they must have been seeing things. 
What they thought they had seen, they didn't know, let alone if they had even seen anything at all. All the same, they decided to put the issue to the back of their mind. Wind blew Pana's hair across their face. It tickled their nose, but they stayed still, waiting a moment to confirm which direction the wind was coming from. Wind blowing in from the north, they called to Like. Like nodded. Yes, it is. Want to help hoist the sail? Pana jumped up and grabbed the rope that Like held out to them. With a heave, they tugged on the rope, pulling the sail up along the mast. Bob walked between the rows of trees. The sun was shining and the birds were chirping. A gentle breeze brushed his head. It hadn't taken long to get used to having no hair. One year it was there and the next it wasn't. Sometimes you just lose your hair. He wasn't happy about it at first, but he had managed. He knew where he was going, though he hadn't been there for years. For a moment he thought it was odd that he was in this place. Hadn't he just been on? He couldn't quite remember where he had been. Oh well. Now he was here. Here is where his mind would need to be. And here was such a lovely place. The trees weren't too close together, yet they weren't so far apart as to let in too much sunlight. His scalp burned much more easily than the rest of him, so he always tried to stay in the shade when it was offered. He plucked a berry from a nearby sipe bush and chewed on it. The juice tasted sweeter than he remembered. It had been years since he had last had one of these berries. With a flick of his wrist, he sent the pit of the berry flying through the forest. Free from the heavy bulk of the surrounding berry, it rose upwards through the tree canopy. Beneath a rare dawn tree stood the house. Or, to be more precise, it stood partially within the tree. Some roots had reached out around it, and now part of the trunk grew over the house. Some of the windows opened up to amazing views of the inside of the tree. The portion of the house outside of the tree had a red roof and white walls. Red flowers grew to the left side, while yellow ones grew in the front. Mint plants with rhombus-shaped stems twisted their way up the house wherever they could find purchase. Two bounders, furry creatures they could hear from a mile away with their three big round ears, leaped around beneath the dawn tree. One leap took them almost twenty feet. Bob remembered how Kalokeri had used to chase the bounders before her hips had finally given out. Even now he could hear her bark booming out from inside the house. Except, somehow, he really could hear her bark. The key was exactly where he remembered it was, as well as the note that usually accompanied it. He opened the door. Kadokeri bounded out of the door, licking Bob all over. He pet her furry back between her wings, just how she liked it. She wagged her tail and raised her eyebrows. With a sudden burst of energy, she sprinted out towards the bounders. As always, they jumped far higher than she could fly. But how? She was dead. Had been for years. Look at how happy she is. She's lucky to have such a wonderful uncle to watch her when we're away. A figure stood in the doorway, which was now bathed in light. Her dark hair seemed to swirl around her, falling to her waist. Her brown eyes shone in her silhouette. Beyond that, Bob couldn't make out any of her features. He racked his memory but couldn't find her in it. Everything was where it should have been. Everything except for her. Who are you? He asked. A name came to him, though he had never met her before. She blinked. And then she was gone. No one has been able to wake him up. Like and Pana had been standing together in the stern of the boat, watching the clouds go by, when Tally had found them and asked for them to follow her. 
He's been sleeping for 24 hours now. His eyes open every once in a while, but he never completely wakes up. The three of them walked into the room where Bob was lying down. In all respects, he looked fine. His breathing seemed normal, and like claimed that his pulse was regular. If not for the fact that he was asleep and unable to be woken up, there wouldn't have been a problem. MC sat next to him, maps and diagrams down. Unusually focused, she watched every move that Bob made. Pana looked over at like, Do you think this has anything to do with the island? With her eyes still on Bob, MC said, The island is here somewhere. We'll find it. An entire island can't just disappear. We'll make sure to fix whatever happened to Bob. Of course we will, replied Lake. MC, keep an eye on Bob, won't you? Tell us the moment something happens. She motioned for Pana and Tali to follow her outside. The three of them left the room, while MC continued to watch over Bob. Back out on the deck, they all took a moment to watch Wave Skimmer flying up above them. It was calming, thought Pana, to see their friend enjoying the air. If only they could fly away and pretend things were all right whenever they were not. They gazed out over the water. They should have reached the island two days ago. It had never appeared. Are you sure we're going in the right direction? Pana asked like. They felt awful when they saw her cheeks go red and frown. I don't know, she said. I didn't want to say anything in front of MC. She really loves her maps. I've heard a lot of things about this general area from some of the other captains and sailors back in the port. Really strange things. Did they ever mention anything about an island? Or the people MC met? No. Like thought for a moment. Well, not exactly. Pana and Tali glanced at each other. Tali raised her eyebrows at the captain. Some sailors came to port and talked about seeing things in the middle of the bay. But they all said different things, so I didn't know what to think. I thought they were just a tad sleep-deprived. One person said they saw a giant furry beast the size of a boat. Someone else claimed that people wearing furs were walking around on ice. But there's no ice this far out in the bay, and no one else has ever seen that big furry critter. And MC said she saw an island with some people, said Tally. And now we're not seeing an island. So, what are we missing? asked Pana. A little while later, a woman called out about her wife and kids never waking up from a nap. Another passenger's mother was also trapped in sleep. Next to Bob, MC had suddenly fallen asleep. No amount of poking and prodding or loud noises seemed to wake up anyone. Calling all able hands to the deck, Like had the boat's oars placed in their holders. Whenever someone fell asleep mid-paddle, someone else would replace them. Those who weren't rowing were helping to maneuver the sails, pulling the jib whenever they were directed to. Like stood at the helm, pulling on the wheel so that the boat veered to the south as fast as it could go. When she fell asleep, Pana gently lowered her to the ground. By now, most of the passengers had nodded off. Only a few remained rowing. The Pana had helped Like with the boat throughout the past days. They didn't feel confident enough to operate it by themselves. Wave Skimmer was sound asleep beside them. They leaped over to a discarded oar and began to row. Only two other people rowed with them. Keep rowing, groaned Pana, straining against the oar. It felt like the oar had barely moved the water. One of the other rowers fell. The second rower screamed and dropped their oar, running towards the side of the boat. They fell asleep long before they got there. Pana continued to row. They used the oar to push against the ice, sliding the sleigh across the plain. 
It was always a slow process, one that Pana was never really any good at. Most of the regular sleigh pushers in the village spent years training and building up their arms. As a seven-year-old, Pana did not yet have the necessary upper body strength to move as fast as the adults. Keep rowing! You can do this, Pana! roared their father. He pushed his own sleigh on the ice next to them. It seemed so easy. There was no way Pana could match his speed. They dropped their oar and began to cry into their fur coat. Their father pulled up alongside Pana and leaped over to their sleigh. He scooped them up into his arms and gave them a great big hug, which they returned with more force than they had put into moving the sleigh. I'm sorry, cried Pana. I I tried my best. It's just so hard. I didn't want to make you upset. No, 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 their father said, patting them on the back of the head. No, I'm, I'm not upset. I'm never upset with you. I'm so glad you tried. You did great. I love you, Pana. I love you, too. He held them even more tightly for a moment. Without putting them down, he asked, Can I show you something? Would that be okay? Pana nodded. He attached a rope from their sleigh to his, and then began rowing across the ice. They slid across the plains slowly, moving further and further away from the village. The sun had set, but it was still so bright out. Clouds covered the sky most days, but this was not one of those days. The snow and ice shone with the light of the stars and the two moons. Pana had asked why there were two moons when there was only one sun plenty of times. Both moons had jagged edges on one side. If one could imagine the moons being pushed together, the edges seemed to align almost perfectly. Their father told them that at some point there had been only one moon, though no one knew when that had been. A jagged form rose up from the ice, and their father stopped rowing. Pana looked out at the oddly shaped protrusion. It wasn't the same color as the ice. It seemed grayer and had specks of white and black in it, as well as some red. What's that? They asked. When the moon broke apart, some of its pieces fell to earth. This, I think, is one of them. It's a great place to sit and look up at the sky, don't you think? Pana nodded. Still in their father's arms, they were moved to the rock. Their father sat down, and Pana crawled out of his arms and sat next to him. Then... The ice around them turned green and red and colors that they hadn't known existed. They couldn't reach the ice from the top of the rock, though they tried to touch the colors anyway. All around them, the colors moved, stretching and compressing, moving back and forth, growing brighter and dimming. What's that? asked Pana. They felt their father grab their hand and lift it towards the sky. In between the moons and the stars flowed strands of color. Or were the colors in front of the moon and stars? I don't know for sure, their father said. I don't think anyone else knows about them. But do you know what I think? What? He looked up at the colors and smiled. A tear rolled down his cheek. I think those lights are your sister, and your grandfather's, and your grandmother. That night, they ride through the sky on the backs of dragons, making sure that we're all safe, you know. And as they ride, they paint the sky. They paint it so that we can see them and smile. That's very kind of them. He laughed. Yes, yes it is. He turned to them. His brown eyes were laced with all of the colors of the sky. I am never upset with you. I just worry. And I want you to have the best life you can. I want you to be safe. And I want you to be able to take care of yourself and others. The best thing you can do is to help someone else. My job, as your father, is to help you learn how to do that. But how is rowing ever going to help anyone? It might not, 
but I'm going to teach you how to do it anyway, just in case. Pana looked up at the sky. Did they know how to row? Pana, shh! Vare raised her finger to her mouth. She turned and tiptoed towards the yorback. It shoveled its snout through the snow. If it noticed the ten-year-old girl, it didn't make any sign of it. Claws gripping the ice, it chewed. On what? No one knew. Somehow yorback survived in the cold, eating something only they could find. No one could dig through the ice like a yorback. Vare approached the creature and ran a hand along the spines on its back. They flattened under her hand, but the yorback continued chewing. She muttered for a moment, moving her hand around, and then squealed in the light when the yorback sneezed and some of the spines shot out of its back. How cool was that? She asked, grinning at Pana. I don't think I want you to do that again, replied Pana, rising up from the ice. Those spines nearly stabbed me in the face. Oh, I didn't see that. I'm so I'm so sorry. Are, are you okay? She ran over and held Pana, examining them for any sign of injury. Pana threw up a hand and tossed powdered snow on top of Vare. Hey, no fair! You nearly killed me. I am certainly entitled to throw some snow on you. Throw all the stone you want, but that isn't a very polite thing to do when you meet a stranger, said Salston, shaking her head. Though if you're facing an enemy, I suppose you might be able to give them a cold. That's actually a really interesting tactic. Everyone is always too busy blocking the sword to notice the handful of snow. But Salston didn't stay long. Or was she even there to begin with? Vare grabbed Pana's hand. What's wrong? It looks like you've seen the ice monster. My parents warned me about it all the time. Pana looked around. But there was no ice monster. There was no ice. They sat in the middle of a trail between fields of vegetables. A newly constructed house stood at the end of the trail, next to a pile of neatly stacked lumber. A man with two small bundles walked towards them. When one of the bundles began to cry, Pana realized that they were both babies. Hush, Sab. It's okay. What a beautiful night. Do you think anyone back in the village ever thinks about us? The man asked, directing the question at Pana. Pana replied, though it wasn't in their own voice. They didn't even recognize themselves as Pana. Whatever body they were in, they were someone else. I don't know, my love. My Naka. Pana brushed Naka's cheek with the back of their hand. How does it feel to have left? Naka contemplated his answer for a while. I don't regret it. Seeing the land uncovered by snow is... beyond anything I could have imagined. Dirt exists? Trees? This all exists? I wouldn't trade it for anything. But... But... I do miss my community. I miss how we all helped each other. No one hunted only for themselves, or melted ice so that they alone could drink. Caring for one another is a lot more than keeping someone in your thoughts and prayers. There's no point in thinking about someone if you are unwilling to help them or are not actively hurting them. You feel bad for leaving? Naka nodded. Was it wrong for me to abandon my people? To come here with you? Salston was back. She looked at Pana. You left your people. The answer was ready on their tongue. I had no choice. They were going to kill me. And why is that? Dragons flew through the sky, belching fire down on the tents below. Pana never told anyone else in the village exactly what had happened. How could they? Instead, they had run. Only Vare knew that they had killed everyone in the hunting party, even if indirectly. 
she surely had told the rest of the community about Pana. She appeared in front of them again, the sky now dragonless. This version of Vare was older than the last had been, about fifteen. She sat on the ground as her leg was bleeding, creating a layer of red ice beside her. Climbing up the cliffs to the east hadn't been as easy as they had thought it would be, and Vare had slipped, slicing her leg on the sharp wall. Somehow she had survived the fall. Perhaps the snow had acted as a sufficient cushion. Ordinarily, it was her getting the two of them out of tricky situations. Shaking and cold, there wasn't much she could do to help herself. Pana had run two miles back to the village, found a group of adults adept at healing, and rushed back to Vare. The girl lay exactly where she had been when Pana left her. Pana ran to her side and held her in their arms while the adults cleaned and bandaged her legs. "'You're going to be okay,' cried Pana, hoping to reassure both their friend and themselves. "'You're going to be okay.' Vare smiled. "'Of course I will be, silly. You're here.' Green liquid flowed around them, breaking apart the rock, but the person in their arms was no longer familiar to them. Pana could only see their green eyes peering through the wrappings around their entire head. The person raised a hand and pointed at a metal structure at one end of the valley. It sat on top of the valley wall far above them. Cylinders ran from one of the sides of the structure to the valley itself. The green liquid was pouring out of them. Strange buildings seemingly built of lighter colored rocks and materials fell all around them. Red prisms broke apart as if they had been neatly stacked on top of one another and nothing more. As they mixed with the liquid, they lost their color. The liquid itself seemed to crawl through the earth, yet it pushed aside the rocks and buildings just as easily as Wave Skimmer could blow a leaf across a chasm. The person Pana was holding shuddered. They gasped and sobbed in bursts regulated by pain. Pana asked them if they were okay. We did this. We did this. What did we do? The person gestured to everything. I thought we were here to provide clean water to the locals. I thought we were here to help people. We were scientists. I was researching purifying water. We should have known they were going to take our research and turn it into some sort of... Some kind of weapon. That's what happened at the southern border. The signs were there. Oh! Now look... This isn't what we signed up for. They coughed. Pana felt them shudder. Let's get you out of here. The laughing was worse than the crying. And have the Canadians capture us? After what we've done? There's no future for us. There shouldn't be a future for us. They briefly coughed again. Whether I live for one minute more or an entire lifetime, I am staying here. We did this. We killed the land. This is what we deserve. I am staying. The green liquid became blue, and it flowed beneath Pana, who was standing on the edge of a boat, looking out over the port. Pana watched as two men walked beneath them along the nearest pier. They seemed to be angry, though not at each other. Pana slid down the mooring line onto the pier and dashed behind some boxes. The voices were much clearer from down there. International markets have shattered. I love the U.S. president, but he should have thought about how the economy would collapse when he decided to burn New York. Uh, they weren't loyal. You don't like things, then go to some socialist commie country. Can't have those here. And if you stay, then fall in line or get shot. But now the entire country is at war with itself and with everyone else. West Virginia just blew up. Apparently storing that much gas in one place isn't a good idea. Even our dollar is useless, and we're just our neighbors. How are we supposed to make money now? Pana wasn't sure what the men were talking about. What was the president? 
something to do with those places that had been destroyed? And whatever a dollar and money were, shouldn't these people be worried about other things like food and water? People still need to trade things, right? We just make sure we get more than they do. A fair trade is a stupid trade. Never give more than you take. Soon, soon enough, we'll be running this town. Pana leaped out from behind the boxes. The two men jumped backwards. Flacky! One of them yelled. What are you doing here? I'd believe you'd call it business, Pana said. All of those peoples out in the port believe that they will get by if they work together. But humans can't work together. We need people up top to wield power. Like you said, money is useless now. But I intend to shape the local economy in the way I see fit. You, my friends, are getting between me and profit. So, it seems you must go. The two men disappeared. Pana walked through a gray hallway lined with long white lights. They wore a white coat that reached just below their knees while clutching a board with a sheet of what looked like the same kind of paper from Salston's notebook. A sudden piercing wail sounded throughout the hall, and the lights turned a deep crimson. Somehow, Pana wasn't surprised. The body they were viewing the situation from knew that the alarm was coming. They continued walking, albeit a tad bit faster. When they reached the end of the long gray hall, a small rod fell down from the ceiling. It shined a green light into their eye, and then the wall proceeded to slide to the side. Pana walked through it. A group of men sat around a large oval table. Pana noticed that all of the men seemed to have lighter skin than they did. At least, when they were in their normal body, that is. At the very end of the table, right at the point of the oval, sat a large man wearing ill-fitting black pants and a black jacket. The style of clothing was unfamiliar to Pana, but it looked uncomfortable. His orange hair was disheveled, and there were dark circles under his red eyes. Everyone else at the table seemed nervous, but they all managed to keep their bodies still. This man's foot tapped on the ground, and he picked up his fingernails above the table. Mr. President, sir, they found us. He fell out of his seat. Crawling on his knees and scratching at the table, he resurfaced. Who found us? The socialists? No, sir. The rest of the world. The man shook his head, muttering about commies. Pana got the impression that whatever those were, they scared the man senseless, if he had any sense. It was difficult to tell. Pana continued. You ordered this, sir, remember? You had us plant weapons all over the globe. You burned the Amazon, bombed Antarctica and Greenland, sterilized entire communities of minorities, released murder hornets in districts that didn't vote for you, reinstated the internment camps, and tore the moon apart with magnets which disrupted tides across the globe, among a number of other atrocities. Cities have been destroyed on your orders. You even had us destroy some of our own cities. Our people. D.C. was suffocated last month after you moved the capital to your golf course and disbanded Congress and the Supreme Court. Of course the rest of the world was going to go after you. You did this. Conspiracies! They're all phonies. <laughs> it's all him. It has to be. Lying stinko. He wants me to look bad so he can look good. But I'll show him. I'll show him. The rest of the group nodded, shouting words of affirmation. No one wanted to be there with the crazed man, but they had all backed themselves into this corner a long time ago. It was no longer possible to get out. A loud explosion sounded from afar. The room shuddered. The man screeched and grabbed his nearest crony, hiding behind him like a shield. There was nothing else to be done. While the men were all distracted, Pana exited the room from a secret door that even the president didn't know about.
Stairs led down to an elevator, which took them even further down into the earth to a reinforced bunker that served as a multi-purpose lab and communications room for the resistance. A woman wearing pants laid in the pockets greeted them from inside the room. The plan worked. They discovered the base? She asked. Yes, Dalston. Finally, the world will be free from that devil. But there is still work to be done. Plana walked to a box that was glowing on the wall. It appeared to be like one of the maps that MC had drawn. Pana could see the bay. In the center of the bay was the island. The island that they had never found. They pointed to it and motioned for Salston to look with them. We are here, on this island. In a few minutes' time, it will sink. You are sure the information stored here will remain accessible to those who need it? Salston nodded. Absolutely. Anyone passing over the island will fall asleep and have visions of some sort of past event. Possibly something that they were involved in. But only those who fit within our algorithm will have the visions specifically about this facility. They will see what you are seeing now. All thanks to you, Helen. You saved the world. Not yet. Their gaze lingered on the map. Pins appeared to stick out of it, even though the screen was completely flat. Each pin marked a specific location. While they watched, some of the pins turned red, while others turned green. The green pins are the weapons that the president still has access to, and is firing right now. The red pins indicate the weapons we have already destroyed. The rest, we don't know the status of. They pointed to one on the edge of the bay, directly east of the island. This is where you should start. We tried to take control of this particular site, but our operatives were discovered. The room shook again, and the lights flickered. There wasn't much time left. The tunnel to the surface would be locked in a few minutes. You have the stones? Yes, said Salston. I'll hide them and wait for someone to claim them. I still can't figure out how you found them. I've watched them save innocents for thousands of years, but I thought they were gone. They should be able to nullify the weapons. A bright explosion ripped through the room. Pana was thrown forward into the map. They heard Salston run off and a door closed behind her. Arms grabbed them and pulled them backwards. Still, Pana looked at the map, searing it into their memory. As they were dragged out, they screamed, not at their assailants, but at themselves. Find them! Find the weapons and disable them. Don't let anyone else use them. Pana breathed out, and the air was filled with a flash of light. The room was gone. Pana was surrounded by ice once more. It was cold. Wave Skimmer lay fast asleep, his snores boring small holes into the ice. Pana sat on the broken piece of the moon, watching the colored lights dancing in the sky one last time. Between the lights, the stars shimmered. Instead of their father, Vare sat with them. The most recent Vare with her broken hand and white fur coat. This is amazing, whispered Vare, her violet eyes staring up at the sky. Pana could swear that every color they had ever seen swam in those eyes. They leaned their head against her shoulder, their eyes closed. Colors still waltzed through their vision. A hand closed around their own. I miss you, you know. But you're right here, silly. Pana opened their eyes and moved their heads so that they could see Vare. She was looking at them, her violet eyes watering. Whatever this was, they didn't remember this. No one back home knew about the moon rock and the lights. That was a secret that Pana shared only with their father. They reached out a hand and touched Vare's face. She did the same to them. Her hand trembled. So did theirs. Neither of them spoke. Pana wanted to, but they found it impossible to make any sound. Maybe Vare did, too. If only there were a way for them to explain what had really happened during that hunting trip. 
to tell her how horrible they felt about how much they missed their friend and how much they wanted her back. But the light faded and Vare disappeared. In a place with no landscape, a silhouette stood. Her waist-length hair and brown eyes were the only distinguishing feature of the silhouette. She reached down and grabbed a blue stone. Helen? Pana asked the figure, unsure how they knew this was the person they had been in the vision of the strange facility. Maybe the figure nodded, but they couldn't tell. She moved closer to Pana. You're doing brilliantly, darling. But I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe it was just their imagination, but Pana could have sworn Helen chuckled, her shoulders bouncing ever so slightly. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing either, and under my watch, the world did end. I had one of the stones, but country still fell. Communities were ripped apart. It, it all broke around me. It, it could all break again. But maybe, if you're lucky, it won't. And wouldn't that be something? Will Varay be there with me? At the end? Helen chuckled again. Perhaps. She lifted the stone in one hand and gently tapped it with the other. The visions ended. He fell out of his seat. That was too dramatic. 